Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Benjamin Rad, UCLA lecturer and expert on government and politics in the Middle East, particularly Iran. Let's hear what he has to say about the Iran hostage crisis. Hi, Dr. Rad. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So can we start off by kind of getting a, a little background on the U.S.-Iranian relations pre 1950s. So pre-1950s, um, out of World War II, the United States and the Soviets and the British had agreed to a sphere of influence that all three would, would share with regards to Iran. The British and the Soviets in particular used Iran and Iranian resources as both a supply route and a staging ground for their opposition to the Nazis and pushing them back, especially in North Africa, but to prevent them from establishing a foothold. They were concerned that uh, Hitler had become too cozy with Reza Shah, the, the um, first monarch in the Pahlavi dynasty. In fact, um, they had visited Iran and the two leaders had good cordial relations. And the concern was that there would be some sort of axis that would be formed there. So to prevent that, they had the Shah removed. He, he agreed basically under pressure from the British and the United States and the Soviets to, to abdicate. He goes to Egypt in exile 
and his son, uh, who is very young at that time, I believe maybe 19 or 20, uh, Mohammad Reza, becomes the de facto leader, the actual leader. And so the United States and Britain and the Soviets now are grooming this young monarch who is doesn't really know what he's doing, was unprepared for the role, and ends up basically doing what the great powers want him to do. And that continues really through the end of World War II, and then the war ends. The British and Soviet had agreed to leave once the war was over, but the Soviets lingered, attempted to establish a satellite communist state in the northern part of the Iran as a breakaway republic, of which the United States and British opposed. They took it to the UN. It was actually the first crisis of the Cold War, or one of the first, if not the first. So it really set the stage for what would become U.S.-Soviet relations in the developing world for the remainder of the Cold War. And that happened in Iran. It was known as the Tehran or the Iran crisis. So then what happens in the early 50s that leads to the 1953 coup uh, that brings down the prime minister? And, and how is the U.S. involved? Well, OK, great question. So uh, there was a, a documentary that just came out a week or so ago, a film called Coup 53, which actually goes over this in, in great detail. And it's a fantastic documentary. Highly recommend it. What happened was Iran at the time is undergoing rapid change as uh, the Soviets um, receive, excuse me, as the British Empire is fading. Britain is trying to do its best to hold on to uh, whatever overseas assets it has. Its crown jewel uh, happened to be the Anglo-Iranian or Anglo-Persian oil company, which uh, Britain owned a majority share of and effectively controlled. And it was a lopsided arrangement where the British were given exclusive rights to um, extract oil from the southwest region of Iran, Khuzestan, and keep most of the profits. It, it's, everything from the extraction to the refinement to the sale was done by the British. A little bit was given to Iranians uh, to to the Iranian uh, state as uh, compensation, but it was a very unfair deal. And as um, opposition to this began to grow, a nationalist movement built up in Iran, led by a member of parliament. Um, um, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh. And Mossadegh, who eventually became prime minister in 1951 on this platform of nationalizing the oil company, did so. He formed a coalition in parliament, um, was able to to essentially declare um, and, and, and uh, undid the prior arrangement that the Iranians had with the British, nationalized the oil company much to the British's displeasure to the English. Uh, they were very un unhappy with it. And they made several attempts to try to dissuade him, to get rid of him, to maneuver around him, to seek support from other members in government. Um, and they initially attempted to have him displaced or overthrown in 51. They couldn't do that on their own. They went to the United States to get help. But President Truman at the time, who had good relations with the Shah, said, look, um, this is an arrangement you're going to have to live with. It's better that you form a positive relationship with Iran rather than trying to maintain this. Um, he didn't call it an unfair concession, but this, the, these, these terms that existed. Uh, when the United States said they were not going to cooperate, the British basically held, um, by their time, they were expelled from the country by the prime minister who basically said, look, we don't, simply don't, don't trust you. You are trying to get rid of me or, or interfere with our domestic affairs. And British diplomats were banned, so the British operated out of Cyprus, effectively running their diplomacy and foreign policy there with regards to Iran. And they tried again when a new U.S. president, Eisenhower, came into office, who was much more receptive, especially the Dulles brothers. You had John Foster Dulles, who was the U.S. Secretary of State, and Alan Dulles, his brother, who was the director of the CIA. 
both of them were very receptive to the idea of putting somebody more favorable and friendly to Britain and the United States as prime minister instead of Mossadegh. So they then, the British resurrected the coup idea and used the United States to really do the on the ground work to ultimately make it happen and resulted in his overthrow, the coup in 1953. And then the Shah is put into power. Yeah, so the Shah was in power the whole time. But what happened was as Mossadegh's appeal and popularity grew exponentially from 51 to 53, the Shah was marginalized and he feared for his own safety. He feared he was he again, he was somebody who hadn't come into his own uh, since he came into the monarchy after his father was deposed. Uh, and so as a result, he here he was dealing with the situation that was sort of way out of his league and he lacked the, the popular support that, that he felt he needed. And um, so for him, he marginalized himself uh, as, as sort of both a, a out of maybe from a shame perspective, but also from a safety perspective. So he was the monarch, but power had shifted so much to the prime minister that after the coup, the Shah was able to consolidate that power back and stack parliament with uh, members that were more favorable to him and, and, you know, restricting which parties were allowed to even run for office so that this situation wouldn't repeat itself again. So what kind of a ruler does he actually turn out to be? Authoritarian, simply put. Whether or not, and there's, there's a lot of controversy over whether he was a brutal dictator or whether he was a authoritarian strongman like we've, you know, the kind we've seen throughout the Middle East in, in, in decades. Um, and he, his policies consisted of both some that were very, by, by modern standards, oppressive, but also very progressive and pro-reform. Um, his 1963 White Revolution which stirred up a lot of anger amongst the conservative clergy class, meant to modernize the country, meant to bring women into the workforce, meant to uh, increase literacy rates, which were in the 20% um, before in the 1950s, and all of a sudden jumped up to 70% after his program was implemented. He wanted to bring workers out of the villages and into the cities, modernize the country, uh, liberate and empower women much more than they had been. And the idea was to make Iran more like Europe. So in that sense, he brought tremendous change and opportunity to huge segments of the Iranian population. So he was a progressive or a populist, you can even say. But he coupled that with very authoritarian tendencies, which was also to maintain effectively one-party rule, limited dissent, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, virtually no opposition, and the use of a secret police to enforce using very brutal tactics – torture and other methods and terror to enforce that system. So on the one hand, if you operated within the rules that he set up, the rigid rules, people did well. But those rules prohibited any real political opposition or any true democratic movement from um, being born. So then what are the contributing factors uh, behind the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini? Yes. Did I say that right? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, wow. So the, the 1963 uh, White Revolution, which was a, a, it's not an actual revolution, it was sort of a policy revolution, it was the big first step because all, what the Shah did is he took land in the country was controlled by these large landowners, uh, a lot of them tied to, to, to the clergy and to seminaries because these clergy and these seminaries lived off of donations and contributions and these landowners were – so they had this relationship where the wealthy landowners – would support or or underwrite these big seminaries and the clergies as well. So when the Shah took this land from these big landowners, 
cut it, um, cut it into pieces and redistributed the land to, to make it more fair, it undermined a huge base of support for the clergy and the seminary. So they were very opposed to that. There was also the idea of bringing women into the workforce, of educating them, of putting them into positions of you know, relative power, um, having them as teachers, professors, having them as uh, corporate executives, essentially bringing them out of the home um, and, and, you know, not veiled, uh, very westernized, very secularized, because the Shah was adamant about modernity being a feature of his, his rule. This is something that the clergy and the traditional base of Iranians who were uncomfortable with this, they, they, they opposed this. So the reactionaries, you can call them. And this planted the seed for a conservative opposition. But the problem was, was that the Shah and the United States, which now basically became the dominant foreign power after the Soviets and the British were effectively pushed out, the United States was focused on communism. And so the Shah also became focused on that. So their concern was, hey, if there's going to be a threat domestically, it's going to be from Soviet agents or communist sympathizers in Iran. So they turned a blind eye to any other opposition or dissent or any discontent that was fomenting. So if people were pushing for democracy, it was not because they were opposed, you know, it, it's not because they might have been coming from conservative circles. They were coming from, uh, you know, uh, leftist or pro-communist circles. So that became the sole focus. So the point being was that the Shah simply didn't notice the threat and neither did the United States. It was a huge failure of intelligence until it was too late. So then the Shah leaves Iran in 1979 and uh, President Jimmy Carter allows him to enter the U.S. for cancer treatment. Can you explain why this is a controversial move by the U.S. and uh, what went into making this making it? Well, when the revolution happened in 1979, uh, so the the United States still had diplomatic relations with the new, whatever the new system was going to be. It wasn't an Islamic Republic yet. They were still working on what the government was going to be. Everyone knew that Khomeini would be in charge, or if not, at the top of the power structure. And the United States had an embassy. They had citizens living there. They had relations. The Iranian, the new Iranian leaders, the, the Islamic revolutionaries, they wanted the Shah returned to Iran to stand trial for a host of, of, of charges, um, including, you know, the theft of, of national wealth, of torture, of all kinds of human rights abuses and um, uh, other abuses of, of power. Now, of course, everybody understood that if the Shah were to come back to Iran, he would be executed pretty much. He would be a, um, a, you know, the trial would be a farce. Jimmy Carter and others were aware of this. So when the Shah wanted cancer treatment of the kind which only the United States could really offer, there was a question of, do you allow him in? In which case then the Iranian government, would, the, the um, Ayatollah would perceive this as giving refuge or safe haven to the Shah. And it fuels this theory that the United States has been his backer and that the concern was, is the U.S. plotting something to overthrow the revolution, to reverse the revolution and bring the Shah back? These were all concerns that the revolutionaries had. So from their perspective, if the United States allowed the Shah in, it would validate these conspiracy theories or these fears. So Carter, being a humanitarian, very much wanted to extend that to the Shah. He had good relations with him. The United States was one of his closest allies. And there were conservative members of his, his cabinet, including uh, Brzezinski, his national security advisor, who absolutely felt it was the right thing to do. 
opposition came from other members, in um, particularly in the State Department, Cyrus Vance, his deputy, uh, Warren Christopher, who were, were concerned about the um, existing United States citizens in Iran, the embassy, the staff, and what this could do for U.S.-Iranian relations. So this was this hesitation. But it was difficult for the United States, just for humanitarian reasons, to leave this guy out and to basically not give him what they could to help him stay alive and, and, and to fight back his cancer. So it was a difficult debate for Carter, but in the end, he, he felt he made the right moral humanitarian choice um, and was prepared to accept the consequences. And we know what those consequences were. Right. So what was the initial plan of the students uh, to overtake the embassy? What was their goal? Their goal was to call attention to their cause and to call attention to the fact that they perceived the United States presence in Iran as what they called um, a den of spies or a nest of spies. And they wanted the United States to take responsibility and to either apologize or to, to, to recognize its role in having brought Iran to the economic or political state that it had been. Um, and so the, the purpose was not initially to, to keep the hostages for that long. Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not this was planned by Khomeini initially. It appears as if the students sort of did this spontaneously, and then they reached out to Khomeini after they took the embassy to get his blessing for what they did. And then once Khomeini understood what he had in his hands, his group took it over from there. So the students really, even though they remained there as, as the, the, the guards of the embassy, if you will, keeping the hostages in place, it really then moved over to Khomeini's circle. And even the Iranian foreign ministry was marginalized, and, and many, it's, many of its members resigned uh, or, or left out of fear. So why was Khomeini so reluctant to return the hostages? Khomeini saw the hostages as a bartering chip. For, that, for him, it was a demonstration not only of Iran's new power, so in other words, reversing this imbalance that had existed for so long, it was the United States couldn't do anything. And Khomeini relished this idea that the superpower so long in his eyes responsible for Iran's uh, political and um, domestic plight was now all of a sudden, you know, incapable of, of rescuing its own citizens. So it was a moment of projecting Iran's newfound authority and power. And then it was attempting to receive concessions from the United States. Now it was for a while getting the Shah to come back and using the hostages as a bartering chip, which didn't work. And then later it was to basically have Iranian assets that were in the United States that were frozen by the U.S. government after the embassy was taken over. Iran wanted those assets unfrozen and returned to Iran. This was A lot of this was the Shah's personal wealth. And from the perspective of the revolutionaries, the Shah had plundered the state's coffers, treasury, and this was the national wealth that was illegally being held in the United States. So the revolutionaries wanted that money returned. And how do we know how the hostages were treated while they were in captivity? Um, they were treated, you know, they were, they were subjected to psychological torture, being taken into mock execution rooms where they're blindfolded and a gun would be put to their head without a bullet in the chamber and the triggers pulled, you hear the click, um, things of that nature, sleep deprivation. There wasn't a lot of physical abuse or, 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 or physical torture in the way that we now know takes place in, in Iran and other countries, but definitely the, the psychological torment was there. Um, by and large, their captors, depending on who the, who the captors were, they, some treated them better than others. Um, but overall, it was an unpleasant experience, to say the least. Their, their, their freedoms were limited. 
their, their option, you know, their ability to communicate with the outside was, of course, completely limited. Um, but they were not subjected to the kinds of physical tortures that we now are, are aware of. But absolutely, they endured psychological torture, which was horrific in its own right. How big of a failure was Operation Eagle Claw? It was a debacle in the sense that the United States had it, it, it was the first time that you had the Delta Force was was used for the first time. So it was this use of a U.S. special operations unit. And it was really important to demonstrate that the U.S. had the capability to do this. So it was for sure a national embarrassment, um, d- domestically speaking. And then it was one that Iran basically it it. Um, it motivated Iran to continue to do, or it um, emboldened the leaders to show that, hey, this is how powerless the United States is, or how feckless they are, that they're only a, that the only attempt to get these hostages out was to use this method, and they couldn't even get that right. So it, the, its biggest impact, I believe, was domestically on Carter. I absolutely think that the hostage crisis being as long as it did was one thing, but Carter's inability to, or his the failure of the mission of Operation Eagle Claw all but doomed Carter's fate in that 1979 election, or 1980 election. What, now, I read some allegations that the Chase Manhattan Bank persuaded the Carter administration into allowing that the Shah, uh, into allowing the Shah into the U.S. for treatment because he was one of their biggest clients. Should, should they be shouldering more of the blame here? Well, I believe the head of Chase Manhattan was Rockefeller at the time, who yes. was um, who had obviously very strong political connections to the U.S. government, and not only had the Shah as a client, but it's not unusual that we see uh, private businesses and executives from private businesses um, have such a strong role in U.S. foreign policy. In fact, look at the most recent um, peace deal between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. Even though uh, it was you know, President Trump and his team that, in theory, facilitated that, we know that Chaim Saban, who is a big Democratic donor and uh, um, an uh, uh, a, uh, entertainment mogul billionaire, was the one that did a lot of the, the, the back work to make this happen. So it's the, you know, sometimes these, these diplomatic efforts, track two, they call them because they're done beneath the first main track. Sometimes they're successful and they work well, and other times they don't. But to say that these corporate titans should be held responsible, it's, I don't think it's that easy because oftentimes they do do effective work to make things happen, and other, other times it, it doesn't turn out so well. So it's simply part of the U.S. diplomatic apparatus. At the end of the day, the responsibility falls to the United States government in its formal diplomatic channels. So why did the Ayatollah uh, finally agree to free the hostages? That's a great question. Um, on the one hand, it was that they – we know, for example, that the decision to free the hostages happened minutes after Reagan was inaugurated. So the idea was to completely shame, embarrass, and ridicule Carter to secure his defeat. It was really the first time a foreign power interfered in U.S. elections and obviously not the last time. First time it was done, it was done very effectively and it was to secure his defeat what the Ayatollahs and the revolutionaries didn't anticipate was what the Reagan administration would be like. Now, whether Reagan and his team cut a back deal during the campaign to say, hey, if we, if we win, we'll agree to do this or that. I mean, later on, Iran-Contra emerged. Uh, we, don't, we don't know yet. Those documents have not been declassified. So we don't exactly know what communications took place prior to that. But on the surface, it was an attempt to humiliate and undermine Carter and to secure his defeat. And once that was done, 
and there was an um, agreement to release, I believe, $1.2 or $3 billion dollars. Uh, of the money that was frozen, it was held in um, – there was a negotiation done in Algiers that year to to release those funds. And once those funds were released and transferred, the hostages would be released. But why Khomeini timed it to just after the inauguration, it's not a coincidence, I don't think. This might be an impossible question to answer or just too lengthy. But, you know, to the best of your ability, uh, how did this crisis shape today's current diplomatic relations with Iran? The way that it's shaped the current diplomatic relations, it's one of the things, the severing of diplomatic ties and the mistrust that has come as a result of two countries not being able to talk to each other directly has brought us to the state where we are today. Iran's revolution has three pillars that it stands on. One of its pillars is independence from the West. Another of its pillars is um, to spread the revolution wherever it can. And the third one is this staunch anti-American, anti-Israel position that it has. If any one of those three pillars is removed, then the revolutionary edifice undermines and it falls apart. So for the Iranian regime in its current form, it cannot reestablish ties with the United States, normalize relations without completely undermining one of its founding principles. So that was that's the first challenge where even if the United States were willing to, with little or no preconditions, reestablish talks with Iran – For the Iranian government to do that would be to basically say, yeah, you know, one of those three pillars that we said is important to us. Well, we're going to completely ignore that. That it simply it becomes hard for them to to maintain credibility with their own domestic constituency, which they already have trouble doing. So th that's the huge issue. Everything about U.S.-Iranian diplomacy today has to go back to how can Iranians, how can the leadership do this credibly and still save face with their own people? So at the end of the day. Finally, uh, if you had to blame one person or thing that uh, for the Iranian hostage crisis, who or what would that be? If I had to blame one, okay, so um, political scientists and, and we we don't like to do blame one person or one thing. It was a complicated series of factors, and a lot of it had to do with the Shah's rapid economic policies um, and. Um, rapid economic development that took place in the 70s, but uneven political development. And a lot of that was supported by Richard Nixon and later Ford. So they planted a lot of the seeds that enabled the Shah to got to where he did. The United States focused solely on the Soviets. It didn't look at any Islamic opposition. So there was a failure of U.S. intelligence. The Shah relied on U.S. intelligence oftentimes and his own um, intelligence services. But the United States should have known should have seen this coming, and it didn't see this at all. So I would say that it was a failure of both the United States and Iran in the early to mid-1970s to understand the grievances and discontent and also where the opposition really was. It wasn't coming from pro-Soviet communist members in Iran. It was coming from a different group of people. They could have used a really good couples therapist. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, they could have used that. Oh, yeah. Well Well, Dr. Rad, thank you so much for joining us today and really helping us understand this very complicated, you know, uh, situation and the history behind it. I'm very grateful. Thank you for having me. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello. Fact checker, Chris Smith. Hello, hello. And that's, that's everyone we have today. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about Dr. Rad? I mean, that was a crash course in Iranian uh, U.S. Uh, 20th century uh, history. I mean, it really was. I've never met anyone so versed on a subject before, but he was he was awesome. And he I don't know, I felt like he clarified a few things we were a little murky on in our episode. That's right. I, I wrote down a bunch of stuff. Um, but for, for the first part, I, I really liked his clarification on how the Shah was really as a leader, because I feel like we we didn't we weren't sure one way or the other. And I think his answer was he was good and bad. Yeah, well, he was good in the sense that he tried to modernize. He had progressive ideas. Um, but yeah, he, he like he, like uh, Dr. Rad said, he totally did not bring the country along sort of politically or culturally. He sort of tried to just fast forward things a little too quickly. And, you know, when you sort of when you're rushing to get out of the house, although who does that these days because we're all stuck in the house in the pandemic. But you remember way back before the pandemic when you would rush out of the house and you'd just like forget a sock or something or, you know, you forget to brush your teeth. Or Maybe like, you know, <laughs> forget to put on my, sometimes forget to put on my mas- mascara or something. You just mm-hmm. like go out into the world and you're just not ready for it. That's sort of what was what I thought of. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't have the right mascara. It was too flaky. He just, yeah. did, he, he didn't bring the, yeah, exactly. He didn't bring her on along. <laughs> yeah. I think actually my impression was that we went too easy on the Shaw because we didn't really even go into him that much, but, um, I mean, he definitely, it was also like he was part of the whole controversy of coming to America. Like, where we really talked about it only from Reagan's perspective. Oh, sorry, Jimmy Carter's perspective of letting him in. Well, the Shah probably knew if he went to America, it would, his whole country would go insane. 
yeah, there is that, uh, dare I say, narcissistic element to him just being like, I mean, but it's hard to put yourself in his shoes. I mean, he's dying of cancer at the end of the day. Wouldn't we all want to live, right? Yeah, and you can't blame someone for trying to survive. He knew if he stayed in Iran, um, which I pronounced Iran, and then um, Dr. Rad did tell me it's Iran. (laughs) Um, Can I I make one very obnoxious, pedantic request? And please forgive me if it comes off that way. It's the first thing I tell my students is is please pronounce it Iran and not Iran. Uh, The joke is, and most don't get the reference, Iran is an 80s song by Flock of Seagulls. Iran is a country. So there you go. But anyway, so you can't blame him for wanting to survive because he definitely, as we learned, would have been executed had he stayed. Right. Right. I would also say we uh, maybe could have used another throw on the British government on there because um, early on they tried to stage that coup before the 53 coup. They were like, hey, guys, they kept nudging America being like, hey, don't you guys want to like overthrow Iran? Like, wouldn't that be cool? In a British in a British accent, of course, but right. like, but we were like, no, bro, like get out of here. And then eventually they were like, hey, here's that idea again. And we were like, okay, this is in our best interest. So Britain sort of was the they were the, the sneaky tin, middleman. They were sneaky. They were sneaky. Sort of. They often are. Well, it, it always sounds like a good idea with a British accent. Well, they're just you know? so charming about it. Yeah, it's like they I present know. these ideas. Would you like a spot of tea at full p? You know, you're like, yes, I'd love whatever you're t- whatever you're selling me. I'd love it. Yeah, we we tend to fall for it. And then also, by the way, um, like we kind of missed the boat a little bit. I think on communism too, because although we did have something like that up there, I th- we had. Did we have anything like communism uh, we, up there? We didn't have communism. And, you know, I'm shocked because I love to put communism up on the board. But I, I think that there were so many elements to this crisis that uh, I guess it could have been a, a f- six-part series. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, it sounds like there is a new documentary out that we could all check out. Yeah, that's but right. But I do... Th- think we should have put communism or the United States obsession uh, with communism up on the board because it sounds like th- this was all happening right under their noses and no one's you know saw no one saw the writing on the wall yeah they were communist obsessed yeah they and were just- they they, they kind of left the conservative uh, reactionaries off the hook that that's what I understood you know another yeah. thing uh, another thing that uh, he mentioned was the, our, our uh, uh, you know, Carter's, um, what do you call it? The person who helps Carter. <laughs> Chief of staff? Or yeah, advisors. Jeez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Words sometimes are easy. <laughs> but he brought up Brzezinski, I think is his name, yeah. which we had, you know, put up on the board. But that was a major fail on his part. And I thought it was interesting that he brought up the uh, Reagan administration and how it's unknown whether there was this, you know, secret handshake behind the scenes so that the Iranians can uh, could help him win the presidency. Mm-hmm. That would be scandalous. Yeah. Echoes of uh, the Trump uh, Russia deal and all of his sort of back channel stuff. It, it, it blows my mind how history just keeps repeating itself. Well, we're trying to make that stop once and for all with this podcast. 
<laughs> we're about a hundred and some odd episodes in, and or wait, no, how many? Are Not we yet, in? Chris. 50 well, if you include the aftermaths, we're oh, that's inching true. up to a hundred. Yeah. yeah. So, Rebecca, what do you think? Like, so this is who we sent to jail. We sent um, American B and E breaking and entering, and the Ayatollah to jail. And then, did we give the big slap to the advisors? That's right. Right. Yeah. I actually think I I like. I mean, he he put it differently. Doctor Rad put it differently, where he said, you know, U.S. and Iranian like relations, but that uh, and we put it more like, you know, U.S. is like desire to go into a country and control it and slash the Ayatollah uh, Khomeini. Um, I guess we we were kind of circling around the same thing, but I do think that the U.S.'s inability to work with the Iranians is ultimately what led us here. Mm. Well, I mean, that I, I guess it, that's true. I mean, I guess it's tricky because we were working with them and then this was the result. Right. So maybe bad, bad communication skills. Yeah. I mean, I still kind of like our verdict. I think so, too. I mean, it, it gets the job done. Well, you know, Dr. Rad is a, uh, what did he call he was a He's a professor and he's a so- sociologist, right? And he has a different, uh, you know, he's looking for a different outcome than we are. His, his you know, he's not... He's not drawing conclusions, but we need to. Like, we're on the front lines of this battle. The podcasting yeah. community needs us. <laughs> they need us to make definitive decisions and stand by it. And at the end of the day, we need to turn that key and lock the door and stand by it. Yeah. So it's a very diplomatic throw... response to be like, oh, the relations, you know. No, we're going to well, do. <laughs> we just need well, to he, throw. He said the Shah's rapid economic development. Um, and the, his slow political development, as well as the United States um, not picking up on this conservative movement. Those were right. sort of the two main things that he cited. Right, right. So there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of cause and effect. But, you know, at the end of the day, only a few people can go to jail because we did send two. <laughs> so <laughs> we already kind of cheated. Right. We couldn't. Yeah. I like I like that we sent both of them to jail. It, for me, jail. that feels good. Well, so, the, the Shah, we kind of just took our, we took our, oppor- not the Shah, I'm sorry. How many, uh-huh. we kind of took our opportunity there just because of all of his shitty policies towards women and homosexuals and just being generally shitty. <laughs> so we are just like, we just threw him in there just that, but I wouldn't say he's necessarily, you know, as responsible for the hostage situation per se as as call it like the shah was and sort of shah right US he, he saw an opportunity yeah he's sort of he's more an opp- of an opportunist. yeah i mean it depends if you're looking macro or micro because you know he is the one who jumped in and made it turn into the big crisis it was you know it wasn't necessarily yeah. going to play out for 444 days we wouldn't be doing this episode probably if they had just been released in 24 hours true so, true True, in true. that way, I, I do think we, I do like that we sent him to jail as well. All right. Well, yeah. Then I stand by, why don't we stand by our decision? It sounds, you know. Stand by, by your, your choice. choice. <laughs> Show them. I didn't want to say man, because I hate that song. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Uh, but real quick before we go, I want to just read us because we've gotten two amazing reviews Ooh. on Apple Podcasts. So um, here's one that comes in from Wesley the Vestley. Five stars. Love the show. However, dot, dot, dot. Mm. Love the format and the show. However, don't be so hard on Fidel Castro and Cuba. Oh, <laughs> that was it. No, that's his yeah. beef. <laughs> okay. And now here's another really great one. Okay, this is, comes in from 73RR90 and uh, no alarm needed. Five stars. Great podcast. Some social talking, but not half the show gets to the point rather quickly. Thank you. <laughs> I love our listeners. Me too. They're the best. They are. <laughs> well, I will still continue to, you know, have my beef with Castro no matter what, no matter what. And uh and I will also continue to try and keep it snappy. Um okay, good. Well, uh that uh, I'm glad we got Dr. Rad on the horn. He was awesome. And uh, stay tuned because next week we are going to be covering prohibition and it's going to be our live recording of the show. So, it, you know, there will be some flubs. I wonder what those flubs will be. Only I mean, exciting. time will tell. Amanda, are you planning any flubs? I have a few flubs planned for myself. Oh, you do good. Yeah, I have a couple of uh, Pratt Falls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about learning the foxtrot because that oh. was. <laughs> I would love to see you two foxtrotting. <laughs> Is it a two person dance? I was planning yes. on doing it solo. No, it's definitely two person. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad. I mean, they don't call it the fox's trot, it's not the. Whatever. The, it's okay, Chris. It's okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.